Okay. So, before we start Parsha Vayesha, before we share some Divrei Torah, let's learn a little bit of Tzidka Satzadik from Rav Tzadik. And we're up to Os Gimel, number three. Um, says Rav Tzadik, Iker HaKriyashma Kabbalos Olmachoshvayim. The main thing of, to learn about Kriyashma is to accept upon ourselves the yoke of heaven. Okay, now, you open up an art school sitter, it's going to say, focus on God's sovereignty. I don't know what sovereignty is, and we hope to try to even understand what God is. So it's 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 a uh, you know to accept sovereignty of something that we're not so familiar with for us is it's a difficult thing. But the says of Tzaddik, the reading of the Shema really is acceptance of Malchus Shemayim. Okay, we'll discuss what that means. The Al Torah Omitzvus. The way to accept God is through Torah and Mitzvah. That's the way to do it. As we learned previously, it's very important in any relationship that we're in that it's not subjective to us. It shouldn't be a subjective relationship. Because once you're in a subjective relationship, it's still all about me. So it's not a relationship. This is how I want to give to you. This is how I want to serve you. And if it's not on my terms, I'm not interested. Well, that's not a relationship. So the relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to be, in a way, what they, we call out in the world, there's a love bank, kaviyachol, so to speak, and we fill each other up, right? We make deposits into that other person's bank to show them that they're cared for. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, listen, I deeply am with you, but here's how, I'm being open and honest with you, here's how to relate to me. Here's what fills me up with gas. And that is the performance of Torah, the, the, the performance of Torah, the performance of mitzvah. Kidisa Vitsarach Bayom Balaila. This is fascinating. In the Shema, why do we say Shema in the evening and in the morning? There's twice a day where a Jew is supposed to say Shema. We say Shema in the morning and we say Shema once at night. Why? The answer is because in Shema itself itself we say Bishakha. When you lie down, you say the words of Shema. And when you get up, you say the words of Shema. Rav Tzaddik is bothered. Why doesn't it just say in the evening and in the morning? Say evening and morning. Two times a day. Rather it says, when I am lying down and when I am getting up. What's the difference between evening and morning and the words lying down and getting up? The difference is, evening and morning is automatic. It doesn't do anything. Lying down and getting up, is like, it's an activity. There's an involvement in that. So says Rav Tzaddik, the Torah is purposely writing about a time period to say Shema through giving us words of activity. Evening and morning are changes that happen to planet Earth. Those are not changes that happen to me. Those are not changes that happen to me. So if I'm just going ahead and doing something for evening and morning that's taking place in the world, that has nothing to do with, with anything that, that's uh, on my behalf. Rather, we want things that are a change in a person. Beyond, during the day, a person gets up and we, we, we have activity. We go out and we do work. We're, we're busy. 
things are happening. And during that time period, we need we have to know, this is so beautiful. Very often we talk about making sure that our actions are L'Shem Shemayim, right? That's when the Torah says to accept Hashem in the morning. Ubalayla, he says, but what about at night? I'm not doing anything at night. Especially in St. Louis, nothing to do. Ace... <laughs> I tell people I love living in St. Louis and visiting Lakewood. <laughs> I don't want to live, I prefer, I don't want to live in Lakewood and visit St. Louis. I want to live in St. Louis and visit, right? It's a nice place to live. There's not much happening. It's easy. It's simple, right? But he says like this. We talk about being Makabal Omach Shamayim during our activities. Listen to this beautiful idea. He says, there's also a Kabbalist Omachu Shemayim when there's a lack of activity. The Menucha. When nothing's happening. When nothing's happening. Gam b'shochvay al Even also, I'm laying on my bed. I'm, sit, I'm just laying with a book. I have nothing else going on. Yeda lefnei mihu shochev. The Torah is letting us know. B'shochvacha. All I'm doing is going to lie. I'm, I'm just lying down on my bed. What does that have to do with Hashem? I'm tired of going to sleep. During the day, okay, I heard the rabbi speak in shul. I get the drasha. Even when everything's a mitzvah and you keep Hashem in mind and all these things, right? Okay, we got all that. But, okay, now, now I have my pajamas on and I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to sleep. He says, you get into bed. No, let's name me who in front of who are you lying down? Kamosha Kosov Bahagod, the Reish Archaim, the Ramah writes, Ashkenazim Paskin, like, the Zemalacha Yosar Gedola says, Rev Tzadik, this is even harder. This is a greater activity of being Makabal Omacho Shemayim when there's calmness and I'm doing nothing is greater than when I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm interacting. Things are, th- things are happening. To bring this out, we quoted the story a number of times in Perkei Avis, but the, the big tzaddik of Shiva in Montreal, Muffel Weinberg, he was sitting next to an, an irreligious person. There's a difference between irreligious and not observant. You could be not observant, but you know, depending on how you describe religion. Um, but Muffel Weinberg was on a plane next to somebody who wasn't religious. This guy says, Rabbi, what's your favorite part of Judaism? My favorite part of Judaism. Okay. So Mother Weinberg on the spot. I would have to think. Okay, what's your favorite part? I don't know. Yeah, you gotta come up. Yeah, inter- interesting question. Right, what's your what's your like favorite mitzvah? Yeah, interesting thing to think about. What's your favorite part of Judaism? He says, he says, you know what I love about Yiddish guy is that nothing means nothing. If you're lazy sitting on the couch, that's wrong. If you're sitting on the couch to rest, that's right. There's nothing that means nothing. If we're showering, it's a mitzvah. We're taking care of our hygiene. It's a mitzvah to your hygiene. It's not like, oh, I'm just showering. It's a mitzvah. Right? There's not a moment of our day that's not active. The frequent... uh, most common example given by the 
Balibusar is the EKG machine. Right? When it's flat, there's depth, which means as long as we're breathing, there's no such thing as being flat. No such thing. We're automatically in flux in a good way. That means there's, even when we don't, it says it says like, even when we don't even know there's activity, we have to know there is activity. And that's his answer. This is precious. He says, that's why the Torah doesn't say to say Shema in the evening and in the morning, because that stuff just happens. But in Yiddishkeit, things just don't happen. It's, we say Shema when we lie down, because we're recognizing, even now, I'm with the Rabbi Nishol. I'm serving Hashem right now. With the activity of mere lying down. And then, and then when we get up, it's a little easier to keep this in mind during our activities. I'm doing this Lashem Shemayim, right? And everything is, everything ultimately can be done Lashem Shemayim. There's a fascinating halacha, type of halacha that comes out of this. There's a law that a person who makes their livelihood off of gambling is not permitted to testify in court. And there's a discussion, whether it's particularly with financial matters, not financial matters. There's a whole conversation with it. It's not, it doesn't mean anybody who's ever gambled. It means somebody who earns their livelihood off of gambling. Why? So the, commenta- the commentaries teach us because every single type of livelihood helps the world. Everything. Think of one area of income that any of us have ever been involved in that is not helping and enhancing Hashem's world. They, it all does it. When you gamble, there's no enhancement to the world. There's a bigger problem that the Bali Halacha bring in, which is you may even be stealing by taking money through gambling because people go into every gamble expecting to win the money when they lose the money. Their mind goes, ah, that's a whole separate conversation. But getting into the, the, the mindset of somebody who makes money off of gambling, and that's it. Like, wh- what'd you just do to enhance the world? And since you earned your livelihood that way, you have no idea of the world of Hashem's finances. You don't get it. And therefore, since you don't get it, you can't testify about it because your eye is just messed up. You don't know how to see things in a way of Torah if this is how you earn a livelihood. So that's the idea here of when you lie down and when we're up and in activity, we, have to rea- we, we should also realize it's a little easier than says Reb Tzadik. He's saying it's a little even easier. When you're out at work, of course that's a mitzvah. Yeah, being osik v'yeshuvo shalolam, being involved in in establishing establishing Hashem's world and letting it function in the way that Hashem intended is a mitzvah. So that's why we have the focus on the activities as opposed to the mere um, as opposed to the mere um, happening of it. Okay, that's a topic for today, and uh, we'll hold that for for Ice Gimel next time we get together if if. Uh, Anybody remembers, if you could remind me, usually I'll move on to Ostalin, but I saw in the introduction, uh, there's an amazing, um, there's an amazing 12 things, I believe, that the 13, 13 little notes that Rav Tzaddik wrote for himself that they found, okay? Um,
Rama a couple hundred years um, that they found. Um, but he wrote for himself. The, it, each one is like the, so deep and so uh, mamish amazing. Mamish, uh, mamish amazing stuff. So I, I want to start going through that also. Maybe we'll start that uh, before we move on to Dalit. There's, there's so much to learn from that. Okay. In the meantime, let's get the first Vayishev. Yeah, for sure. Got to ask your LOR, your local Orthodox rep. Um, it's a, I'll, I'll tell you why it would be a problem. I'll tell you what, the problem is not the gambling itself. That's not the issue. It's a much longer um, conversation. It's not complicated at all. It's just multi-layered, and the multi-layer starts with the laws of finding lost objects. We're from the laws of finding lost objects. I don't know how familiar we are with what determines whether something needs to be returned has to do with Yish. Okay, Yish is is um, uh, in in the Torah. The way that every transfer works is by me removing my mind from that item. So interestingly, in the Torah, the way something become that's mine becomes yours is as follows. Um, I have this chumash. You want to buy it for $20. If you give me $20, this is not yours. What makes it yours is my mind agreeing that by you giving me the $20, I'm removing my ownership and handing it over to you. Okay? When you find a lost, that's how it works in the Torah. When you find a lost object, when are you allowed to keep it? If, there, if the owner's mind is no longer on it. As soon as I lose something and I give up on it, I don't expect to ever get it back. I removed my mind, and now this object, without any activity, became hefker, became ownerless. And since it's ownerless, somebody else who comes along and picks it up is now going to halachically have the right to take ownership because they don't need to remove my mind from it anymore. It's now nobody's mind, and it becomes theirs through them actively picking it up and now they're owners and nobody else could remove it from them until that owner removes their mind from the object. It's all about the mind when it comes to financial agreements and it, it continues when it comes to vows and oaths. There are so many uh, practical shilas that are answered by knowing this, this default reality, which is that, um, which is when somebody makes a vow or an oath, I pledge $100 to Tzedakah. And then it comes out that um, the way that the campaign was presented to me or the way that the person spoke to me was not what I originally thought. I have zero responsibility to follow through on that $100. Because financially, the way that Hashem set up set, set this all up, it has a lot to do with with the mind. And it could even be stealing on behalf of the other person. It's very, it's a, it's a you know, I, I just, uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 multi-layered. So it's it's uh, it's multi-layered. So getting back to to your question, I'm trying to remember. Oh, so gambling. Oh, so gambling. You run into this problem tremendously because when people gamble, since they don't expect to lose their money, 
you may very well be a thief by taking the money. That is so again, so with, that's why there's many layers to it more than just gambling itself being like, eh, it, it's how, how ownership works in the Torah can be a big problem when it comes to, uh, when it comes to particular areas of, uh, particular types of gambling. It's very, it's, it, you know, sometimes you hear things and you're like, oh, that's just like, I wasn't expecting that, you know, I wasn't expecting that, like, why, can't, why don't we go swimming on shops? You know, so it's, there's a conversation if you can't go swimming because it's a problem of construction or whether it's a problem of lighting fires. Like, what? <laughs> Seriously? Really? I thought it said you can't go swimming, you know? No, it doesn't say that, right? <laughs> But like, you know, sometimes the answer comes from like a whole different angle. They're like, oh, because they used to light fires under bathhouses and if you put your whole body in the water, you might come to warm it up. Or you might, or if you go and put your whole body in the water, you might come to build a raft or the whole, like, <laughs> whatever. So it's like, oh, that wasn't, that was not expected. That was <laughs> totally unexpected. So, you know, that, that falls here as well. All right, let's get going. Parshas Vayesha. Okay. Let's, uh, let's learn a little bit about Yosef Atzadik, and I'm going to need some, uh, some guidance over here. There's really so much to understand. Uh, this, this shift that we're taking from Yaakov and Esau to this story of Yosef. Okay, and we'll see soon why. It's, it's, a, it's a little mind-blowing. Um, and the story of Yaakov and Yosef, of Esau, we're going to see, doesn't end. Yosef's going to take Yaakov's place. That's going to be the theme of today, really. Where we kind of view Yosef as like, oh, this is the next step of the story. Yosef is the new Yaakov and Esau. And if that makes no sense, we'll explain it. And it's, it's, it is amazing. Okay. Paragraph Zion Pasigal. Let's get going. Vayeshev Yaakov Ve'eretz Megure Ovid. And Yaakov dwelled in the land that his father traveled in. We know that his father Yitzchak, Isaac, never left the land of Israel because he was a holy sacrament. So Yaakov lived Ve'eretz Kenan. He dwelled in the land of Kenan. Okay. Now, let's start talking about Yosef and Yaakov and hope we don't get stuck on this uh, for too long because I want to like move on and get back to it but let's see what happens. Rashi says Tupshatim, we're going to focus on the second one first. Says Rashi Why does Parshas Vayeshev follow Parshas Vayishlach? We're at the end of last week's Parsha we listed all of, Yo- all of Esau's offspring all of these chieftains I love this, I love that, I love it, uh, all of it. What's the deal? Says Rashi. Vayeshev Yaakov, Yaakov settled. Hapishtoni Hazer, there was a fellow who sold flax. Nichnesu Gamalav, he gives us a story. And the guy sold flax. Camels came, came into town with a lot of flax. Hapchami Tama, and the blacksmith who makes sparks was astonished. Oni Yichani is called Fishon Hazer, where are we going to keep all this flax? There's no room. No room for all this flax. Why the, why the flax seller uh, order so much? And one keen person responded to the blacksmith. Let me tell you something. You're wondering about all this flax and where it's kept and what happens with it. Let me tell you something, sweetie. 
one spark of your hammer that touches this flax, poof, it's gone. Okay? Shasayr Peskulah will burn it all up. What is, what is this terrible? What's going on here? Kach Yaakov. Yaakov, so too. Ra'az Kalu, he saw all the chieftains that are coming out of Asa. Toma, he was astonished. Vamar, me, Yachal, Lichvesh is Kula. I'm fighting against Asa. What's to do? Yeah, who, who could conquer? Who could con- conquer this? Maksiv Lamata said, what is our, how does our parasha begin? It says, Eila told us, Yaakov, this is the offspring of Yaakov, which is the beginning of the second Pasuk, Yosef. You know who's going to conquer Esau? Yosef. He's the 11th kid. But Yaakov waited for Yosef to be born to now come and meet up with Esau. He, didn't, he wasn't confident until now. And it says in the Pasuk, the house of Yaakov is a fire, the house of Yosef is a torch, and the house of Esau is straw. So that's the parable over here, and this is a Pasuk uh, in Ovadia. Okay, so all of a sudden, what, the, what Rashi is letting us onto is y- Yosef is this antidote for Esau. Yosef and Esau are the, uh, are the uh, you know, are, are the antidote. So what's going on over here? So let's start by jumping ahead a little bit. Start by jumping ahead and just to create the picture of what's happening between Yaakov and Esau and ultimately what led the brothers to this parsha of selling Yosef. Okay, this is going to be one picture that brings so many different moving pieces together. It's fantastic. Let's start with the Malbim. The Malbim says on the third Pasuk in our Parsha, which says that the brothers hated Yosef, okay? And uh, because Yaakov loved Yosef the most, Yisrael loved Yosef the most, says the Malbim. You know why the brothers hated Yosef? Because he had the Ksonas Pasim. He had this beautiful coat. And this was not a simple coat. This is not just a beautiful coat that they're jealous about a coat. No, this is the coat that Adam and Chava originally dressed in and ultimately were passed down through all the generations. Noah ended up with it. It ended up by Nimrod and uh, by Isa and by Yaakov. Okay? So here's what happened. Says the Malbin. The brothers were nervous that Avram had two children. Yitzchak and Yishma. What happened? Not, not the best ending. Right? Yishmael, according to a lot of opinions, did tshuva at the end. But the two brothers went on different paths. Avram ended up being perpetuated through Yitzchak, and Yishmael is out the door. Yitzchak has two children, Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov ends up with the brachas, and Esau, who had originally called it tricked, right? Conversation of itself, he ends up out the door. Ultimately, once Vayecharad Yitzchak, once Yitzchak realized what happened, Esau is no longer having Klal Yisrael come through him. So Avram has two children, one gets pushed to the side, Klal Yisrael comes through one child. Yitzchak has two children, Esau gets pushed to the side, and Klal Yisrael is now coming out of Yaakov. Said the brothers, by Yaakov giving this Ksonas Pasim of Adam and Chava, this precious garment to Yosef, do you know what's happening? Yosef is the new Esav. The same way Esav tried tricking our father's father, tried tricking Yitzchak 
to think that he's a tzaddik, that's what Yosef is doing too. And you know what Yosef, you know, this is why they passed in these Chayav Misa. Because they felt that Yosef is destroying Klal Yisrael. Yosef is the new Esau who's tricking Yaakov into the look of a big tzaddik, like Esau was trying to do, and push away the other tribes. And this way Yosef can have all of Klal Yisrael come through him. No more Shvatim, just Yosef. The same way Avram had Yitzchak and Yitzchak had Yaakov, Yaakov's going to have Yosef. This is Yosef's agenda. This was the issue the brothers had. Now the Torah is telling us that really the whole thing was a mistake. They weren't being Dominikasko, so to speak, right? They weren't viewing the situation appropriately. But this is why, like, okay, you're jealous of your brother. You're the biggest people, like, the ship they could. None of us touched their anything. Forget a toenail. We don't touch anything about their greatness. But it, the way that they saw things, Yosef was completely destroying Klal Yisrael. They viewed him, this is the first hint where we see, they're viewing Yosef mamish like he's Esau. Mamish how they're, they're viewing. Okay. Now, what, what do we see in Rashi? This is, a, this is a, the, the opposite is true. Because Rashi just showed us from the Pasuk in Ovadia that Yosef is Yaakov and Esau is just a bunch of flax which can be burnt up in a minute which going back to what we learned together a couple of weeks ago this mushal is beautiful this parable is amazing because Esau is the Yitzhahara the angel of Esau is the Yitzhahara which is just cotton candy it's just fluff it's just flax that can be burnt up with one spark you could totally get you know, totally get, get rid of him. It's, everything's on the surface. Esau himself is called Adom. His name is Adom, Red, from the Red Chalm. He, 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 didn't even, he didn't even call it a soup. He just called it Red, because he just sees surface. That's all Esau is. He just, but, but he's convinced he knows everything. He sees the surface, and he's convinced, uh, he's convinced that, uh, that everything is seen. So the brothers were totally wrong about Yosef, to the point where Yosef not only isn't Esau, he's the antidote to So listen to this Medrash. Medrash Barashas Rabbah, Peydalad. The Medrash explains, Habir Bezehu, he says like this, this is the explanation. Why is Yosef the one Shevet, the one tribe specifically to fight against Esav? Yitzchak hichzik as Esav the tzaddik. Yitzchak thought Esav was a tzaddik. And what did he think? V'chashav. Esau walked around with a black eye. Esau walked around with a black eye. He knew he was a tzaddik. As soon as you know you're a tzaddik, you're not a tzaddik, right? So Esau knew he was a tzaddik. Like, that's why that's the game. The Kutzkarabah talks about the person who's such an anav that they're they hide in their house and peek out to make sure everybody in the street is talking about how big of an honor they are. <laughs> right? It's like a game. Like sometimes if, if like, like we need to experience life enough to know for ourselves if we're really being humble. Like if somebody says, oh, you know, can you please sit at the head table? Say, no, no. That itself could be arrogance. Like, j just go. Like, make the person happy. Oh, wait, you think you're so cool that you don't need to sit at the head table? No. You know what I mean? Like it's never ending. Like you really, we really need to understand ourselves. Like sometimes our our striving for humility is just being arrogant at, at our humility. 
it's it's you know this is why we need like a, 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 we need to contemplate we need you know we need to like lie down and be like you know t- take our space have our time and like you know is, is is my humility properly placed right now or is it stemming from from a place of uh, of a potential arrogance but Esav knew he was a tzaddik right he, he's worthy of the brachas this is this was Esav he didn't walk around now he wasn't Ishsada, he was a hunter I'm sure you know he didn't wear a, a black hat and a strimal and whatever he dressed while he was hunting but he certainly presented himself like he's a real pro yeah real real uh, religious guy inside what were they saying a scam it was a scam Asaph on the outside what, what we call Chichinius on the externals like a totally religious yeah I'm the most serious person out there inside he was a Russian Marusha terrible person taking advantage he was a murderer he was a killer but you know, okay Mur- even murderers and killers convince themselves what they're doing is right okay so this is this is Asa says the Medrash what was Yosef what was Yosef let's read the second puzzle this is the offspring of Yaakov Yosef is 17 years old he would shepherd the sheep with his brothers. He was a nar. What we call in, in Yiddish, narish. He did silly things. In what way did Yosef do silly things? Rashi says, He was engaged in things that young people take seriously. He would walk over, make sure his hair was perfect. He made sure his eyes were beautiful. Right, we know the entrance to a person's soul is their eyes. You could see a lot about a person, the way that they represent their eyes, the way they look at you. He was very careful in how he placed his eyes, both physically and spiritually. It's a beautiful idea. The mashmesh be'enai means he was careful with what his eyes, how, how his eyes saw things. But also physically. He made sure he was put together. Kadeshia Niriyafe. He wanted to look impressive. The Torah is letting us know this. Okay? So what was Yosef? The exact opposite of Esav. Esav, on the outside, looked like a Fermi. Inside, Yosef didn't really care how people viewed him on the outside. He was a tzaddik. He was Yosef a tzaddik. But we're going to learn through the Parsha. We're going to see everything he did. On the outside, he was a little cool. That's the word we use now. He's a little cool guy. Right? Put together into his stuff. Okay. But that's not who he was. He just presented himself. Like I'm a cool guy. But inside, he was what we call teichen. He was, he was healthy. He was deep. He was true. And both Yosef and Esau have this um, counterbalance, but they're exactly opposite of each other. The exact opposite. Yosef's busy building himself up internally, to a point where he's the only one of the tribes. He's number 11. But there's no other tribe who has a second name. Right? I don't know. Somebody once, uh, somebody once uh, quipped to me. He's like, Menachem, why does every yeshivish person have two names? Mm-hmm. Like every, uh, Chaim Yanko, like everybody's got two names. Like, I don't know what's going on. He's like, I don't have two names. Not fair. You know, it's like, 
Everybody seems to have two names besides uh, besides for me. What is it? Could be said. All the Shvatim have one name. Ruven, Shimon, Levi, all of a sudden, there's a Tzadik. He's the only one who, who we name, we give him, he's called the Tzadik. Why is he the only one who's called the Tzadik? Because he had to deal with this. He, by the, he's called the Tzadik after the story with Potiphar's wife. When he contained himself, and he limited himself, that's, from then on, is when he gets this, this labeled Tzadik. So it's so fascinating. He's put together, he's, he cares about it, and he seems to like be interested in his externals, but that's not really what's driving him. What's driving him is his internals. And Asav also, he's interested in his externals, but what's driving him is his internals, except that Yosef and Asav had different internals. So the battle, here's how this picture comes beautifully full circle. The battle between Yaakov and Esau is the battle between Yosef and Esau. Yosef is taking Yaakov's place. Where previously you have Esau against Yaakov, Yaakov now has his sidekick. This child who has the same struggle, the same you know, uh, difference between internals driving but presenting externally and Yaakov now can bring him and say, Yosef, you, you've got the tools to take my brother down. Like, you're the man of the hour. Now, now you're going to take the place and light the fire that's going to take care of the flex and, and burn up the flex. But this brings everything full circle because for us, we now start to realize like, like on the surface, it was very hard to know Yosef to a point where the brothers thought that he was Esau and Chai of Misa. This is like, this is wild. In truth, Yaakov saw Yosef for who he was, and he said, no, Yosef is not Esau. Yosef is the antidote for Esau. He just looks cool. That's it. But his Panemius is well ahead of his Chitanius, and that's it. And that's something that... that um, you know, that uh, ultimately uh, came together. Okay, Mamish, uh, really so much, uh, so much to, to notice over there. Yeah. Yes, that is why he gave him the coat. And if you want to add a, a you want to add a, another beautiful twist to the story that's usually not spoken about, but I just, I was learning through some sfarim on Sunday, and and one of these sfarim that I was learning mentioned this, and I jumped out of my seat. I was like, "This is amazing! It just adds a whole added dimension." This coat from Adam and Chava, Hashem gave Adam when He was naming the animals. Nimrod ended up with the coat, and this is how he became. This is a medrash. This is this is something that is out in the this is out in the public, so to speak. Um, this coat Nimrod took, this is why he was a successful hunter, because the coat had pictures of every animal on it, and any animal that saw the coat, as soon as they saw it, they would lay down, and then the hunter would kill them. Esau killed Nimrod. That's where he got it. Esau, and that's why he became the Ishiadeya Tzayid, he became the hunter. Ultimately, he handed it over to Yaakov when Yaakov purchased the Bechorah from him. This was Yaakov's way of acquiring 
the firstborn, he received he received this coat. Okay. Now the Ksornas Pasim, this colorful coat had all the animals, is what he gave to Yosef. Now here's what I never chapped till this Sunday. This is why when Yaakov heard that Yosef was torn by a wolf, he refused to believe it. Says he refused to be comforted because the brothers weren't aware of what's going on with this. And their whole claim was they took this Ksonas Pasim, which its superpower was to get the animals to lie down and to not mess. And they dipped it in as if Tarof Taraf Yosef, as if Yosef was torn up, Yaakov knew it's not possible. And therefore he knew there's more to the story. It bothered him tremendously that this would have happened. He didn't know the story. It bothered him tremendously. And then he refused to be comforted. I, I, like, I was like, whoa! I was like, that just makes so much sense. Like, it like brings, like, the, once you start searching underneath the, just a, a little, I mean, we're just scratching here. Like, just a little bit under the surface, like this, this, this storyline of what was taking place within this beautiful family, trying to make sure that Klai Yisrael is being established with total Kedusha. Everybody is, is just focused on one thing. The Shvatim, by trying to kill Yosef, they were focused on the Kedusha of Klai Yisrael. Yosef, everybody's just trying to, it's so, it's so fascinating. Everybody is just trying to save Klai Yisrael, but there's so much drama. Like, you're trying to do this, and I'm doing it. And the Torah is telling us, like, this is how we were established. Like, you know, like, yeah. yeah. It's not clear. It's not clear. Well, Even I if it was. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, no, the general understanding is that it was different. That's the general understanding. But even, even if it was different, even if it was different, you don't need to go back and teach you. I'll tell you why. Because according to this opinion that the Ksonas Pasim was the original garment of Esau, there's a whole different... Um, there's actually a machlokas amongst the Midrashim um, how this Ksonas Pasim was passed down. According to one opinion, according to the opinion of this Midrash, this is actually what Yaakov put on. And after Shir today, I'll show you the two opinions. I'll learn it with you inside. I'll show you. It's very interesting. No, I want to learn with you because you've been teaching me. So I want to. Uh... <laughs> yeah, but it's, this, I, I never cop this. Right, right. It's amazing, yeah. Where they are, yeah. So it's a it's an important question, and the reason why, the reason why you know we should notice this is that the, the pasuk tells us Yosef is seventeen. Now he's number eleven, but all these shvatim were born within 
Until Yosef, they were all born within a three, four year span. The oldest Shevet is young 20s. That's the oldest. Okay? They were, there was not a, they had different mothers. There was a much, much uh, smaller gap between them. I don't have a, a uh, answer that I've heard. I, I, haven't, I haven't heard that question. Um, the message that until I hear an answer, the message that I personally would take from it is that um, you, the, the, a, a, a parental responsibility is limited. For better or for worse. For better or for worse. My mother would say, I don't take the blame and I don't take the credit. But I don't take the blame, I don't take the credit. There's a certain, there's a certain point where we have to, this is, this is very important, where we have to realize as anybody, even if, as particularly for a parent who, who wants to like be in control. Like I had a, Two days ago, we we uh, gave our kids uh, Kansas Sprite in their snack. Okay, I'm trying to remember what happened. Uh, a can of Sprite, a can of Sprite. I'm trying to remember where they got sodas from. I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, from the uh, Kowalski made like a Shema at night for the kids, and they gave out Kansas Sprite. So it was nighttime. They say Shema is like what? I forgot. Six o'clock or so, right? So we told the kids, you can't drink it tonight. You can drink it tomorrow. We don't want you drinking Sprite before you go to bed. Okay, trying to be good parents, right? In the meantime, so the kids put it into their lunch, and they come to school the next day, and very nice, and we pick, you know, my wife picks up one of the children from school, and she's very sad. One of the younger, one of the younger girls is very sad. What are you sad about? Well, I took out my can of soda by snack time, and another girl in my class um, walked over to my teacher and said, right, you're not allowed to have Sprite in school. Well, blank Tendler has Sprite, and her teacher took it away. So, my teacher took it away. Okay, so my, my daughter's very sad. So, as a parent, what do you want to do? We want to go beat up the kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, get over here. Yeah, Lush and Hara, I'll give you a shit. You know what I mean? Who are you to snitch on my kid? Yeah? I'll tell you the difference between telling and tattling. If you want to help her, that's telling. You just want her to lose the soda. You're a tattle. You want to get involved. You don't, obviously, right? But if, if a parent were to do that, that's actually harming the kid. Not only is it the wrong to do with the other kid, you're harming. A kid has to learn to experience life. That's going to happen. It's going to happen to her all the time. Right? So you sympathize. And you say, you know, it really wasn't nice. It's true. It wasn't nice as other girl did. So we have to learn never to do that to somebody else. And you tell you the difference between telling and tattling. Like, mom, that's, that's, that's what you got to do is take those feelings and know how to, uh, you know, how to hopefully use it in a way where she won't do that and, and take it as a message. But you got to take a step back and be like, that, you know. And we know, I, don't, I personally don't ultimately know when it's right or wrong to say something, do something, um, yet. Yet, here's a, a message, and I got this from Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, okay? He gave a lecture a while ago. I'm sure you could find it on his website or on YouTube, he gave a lecture called When Religion Becomes Toxic. Fantastic lecture. When Religion Becomes Toxic. I actually heard this 
a couple months before my mother passed away, and I was going to visit my mother, and I, I listened to this, and I was blown away, the, the, the importance of this, and then when I went to my mother, we watched it together. Watched it together, she was, you know, she wasn't, she surely wasn't well, but, and we had a, had a fascinating conversation. But in this lecture, he says, uh, on point, I don't know if it's from Lubavitch Rebbe, I don't know if he was quoting, he, he was talking about the story of Esther, where, you know, on Purim, all the little girls want to be Queen Esther, even though she lived a terrible life. Right? Never feel. But, but maybe that's what it is, right? She, once the story of Purim happened, the rest of us are dancing in the streets, and she's still living with Ahasuerus for the rest of her life. She, she did not have a Purim story. Everybody else did. She never, think about it, she never had a Purim story. She never, like, it's, it's like, hello. You know what I mean? She, like, dedicated everything so that we can, we can have a Purim. When she comes to Mordecai and has the conversation about whether or not she should go in, Without getting into the entire story, Mordechai uses a couple words with her. And the two words are, mi yodea. Who knows? In context, he's telling her, who knows if this is your moment. If you don't step up and say, Klai Yisrael, somebody else will. There's a lot to say about that as well. That's certainly true. But, but uh, Rabbi Jacobson focused on, I think it was quoting Rabbi Shreve, that mi yodea is letting us know that ultimately, in any one of our lives, our personal life, our siblings' lives, our parents' lives, our children's lives, anybody's life, me, Yodea, we as human beings have no way of knowing the journey that that neshama must be on. And this is what Mordechai is telling Esther. You're going in now to yourself, to Akashverosh. Why you need to be living with this scoundrel of a king? Why you need to... Mi idea. We don't know our personal journey. We have to strive to know it. But we certainly don't know anybody else's journey. And we can have a child. We can have a child who grows up in a wonderful home and then turns. And we're like, what happened? The answer is, me idea. That's their journey. HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs this neshama to be in a particular place, to be on a particular journey, and we have zilch, zero control, zero authority, zero knowledge of what that ultimate journey is going to look like, what it's going to be. But all we can do is for anybody, within our families, within our homes, within, is just plant seeds with them and then see. And then mom is just, just check it out. See, you know, see what's, what, what ends up growing. But me, idea, we, we don't have control. So where my mind is to answer the question, where, were their, where was their involvement? Yaakov obviously knew that in this particular area, he, he didn't have room for involvement. Right. So and every. We have brothers. We have brothers who are banging up against mm -hmm. another brother in a very serious way. 
and, but here's the reason why. I they thought. Be disconnected. So I think. I don't, so I don't either. Ultimately, know, but I think we can start. We, we can possibly get in there a little bit. Get into this, which is, if the brothers are viewing Yosef as Esav, yeah. fooling Yitzchak, yeah. so then there's no space for Yaakov. He's he's fooled. There's, there's, he's learning Torah with Yosef. Yosef has this narrative with him. Yaakov's in with it. The only way to stop this is by going out to the field, going out on our own, and selling him out. Get, getting, he, he's got to split up from Yaakov. Otherwise, Dad's bought into this Mishigas, like Yitzchak bought into Esav, and perhaps that's their, uh, that's their thing. One more. Oh gosh, one forty. Um, uh, I don't regret it. But uh, one more thing to, to add to this, interestingly, is, is um, by the story of Shechem. You know, by the story of Shechem and Dina, it's so fascinating. Just to, to add on to your question, Yaakov gets very angry with Shimon and Levi. Gets very angry with them, the shtick that they pulled. And Shimon and Levi respond, you think we're going to let our sister be a harlot? Period, and we start a new parak. That's the end of the conversation. Rav Pam points out the Torah doesn't tell us who's right. Yaakov gives Shimon and Levi most. He says, "Guys, you can't do this," and they respond to Yaakov. What else do you want to do? And Yaakov doesn't respond. That's it. That's the end of the story. It's like we don't. It's like it's as if they're both right. It's as if they're both right. Like Yaakov needed to tell them, "You guys can't do this." And Shimon and Levi needed to be those brothers who stood up for their sister. You know, and, and sometimes life is just like that. This is not with the bro- this is not with the brothers and Yosef, because there we find that everybody else is held accountable. Okay, there is a claim against the brothers. There, there's accountability. But over here by by Yaakov and the story of Shem, it's so fascinating how like um, you know, my, uh, just uh, we'll end with this. Um, my father Jacob Brahman, he was learning in Lakewood. So Rabbi Aaron Cutler had gone to visit Eretz Yisrael. And he was coming back. He was landing in JFK. So all the guys in the yeshiva at the time, maybe like 50, 60 guys. Um, my father, you know, Lakewood now is, <laughs> it's Lakewood. Um, my father, when he went to learn by Barn in 1950, there were 40 guys. And he left in 1961, there was 61. And Rabaran passed away the next year. When Rabaran l- passed away in Lakewood, he had like 60 guys in his yeshiva. And now there's what, like 10,000, whatever. Lakewood, I mean, the whole city, right? So, you know, over 100,000 people. It's amazing, you know, how you just plant seeds and then it, it goes. But anyway, Rabaran Kutler had gone to Eretz Yisrael. And he was coming back and he was landing in JFK. So all the yeshiva guys wanted to go greet him at the airport. And Rabaran said, nothing doing. You're tired of learning. You want to make me happy? You stay in yeshiva. So, my father and a few of his chavirim, they called up Rav Moshe Feinstein. They asked Rav Moshe, what should we do? So Rav Moshe said, it's Rav Aaron's responsibility to tell you to keep learning, and it's your responsibility to go to the airport. Yeah. You're both right, but go. Like, he's your yeshiva, he says keep learning. But I'm telling you, as what you're supposed to do as Talmidim, is go meet him in the airport.
Right? Sometimes things are like that. Right? Sometimes, you know, maybe like Yaakov is saying, you got it? Shimon Levi is saying, well, it, it, we're in this position. Like, that's it. And, and Yaakov doesn't push back at it. <laughs> He's still sticking to his guns and they're sticking to their guns. Okay, sometimes you're in like a disagreement, but like where everybody's coming from may very well, uh, may very well be a, a correct place. You know, that's, uh, that's an ideal. Okay, we'll hold it here for today. And then Shem, uh, to be continued.